everyone, and welcome to Pathfinder, a podcast by Payload, the leading digital media company in the space industry. Today, I am very pleased to, to introduce Tim Kindberger, uh, the CEO of Leo Stella. Tim, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you, Mike. Tim, um, why don't we um, why don't we get started with a little bit of an overview of your career? Um, you've had a very interesting one um, before you joined Leo Stella, but just tell us a little bit about. Um, your journey into the space industry and how you got to the company you're at now. <laughs> sure. Um, one thing that's common, I think you'll find that I'm with a lot of people that work in the space industry is they have a passion for space. And that's passion, you know, it relates to something probably in their lifetime, sometimes in their career that kind of drives that. So uh, I, like many people, you know, Born and grew up during the Apollo launch era, and that really got me excited about space when I was a little small kid. Um, throughout my career, I started actually with airplanes, um, but then transitioned into spacecraft kind of in the, I don't know, about 25 years ago or so. Uh, and that kind of stuck. I stayed there, uh, working in advanced concepts of space and developing um, smaller satellites in a large company, very very unusual, very aggressive. So really enjoyed that experience. It was phenomenal. Um, worked my way up through the chain, um, captured a lot of, uh, as the space industry shifted, right? So we went and watched that occur from very large satellites that were very highly reliable and super expensive, a uh, billion dollar for a satellite into this new evolving new space market that that is really taken off now. Um, and it's driven a lot of reliability into the supply chain, which has been critical for the new space market. So now we've got an exciting time where new space satellites um, are reliable enough that you can base your business model on. And from that, we can build multiple spacecraft to help you um, accomplish your business goals and and I still love working in space. I love fielding spacecraft systems. Uh, I think it's pretty exciting what we can accomplish and, and where the, you know, the discussions of moving to cislunar, I think is also pretty exciting as well. So, you know, Leo Stella, I know, is uh, a bit different from some of the companies we've had on our, on our show in that it was uh, developed as mm -hmm. a result of a joint venture between two companies. So maybe tell, tell us a little bit about, you know, what inspired um, that joint venture, both from a business and strategic perspective for both both of those two companies? Yeah, Leo Stella is definitely unique in the marketplace, surprisingly enough. Um, it, it's the founders for Leo Stella, two partners, they had um, a common interest in mind, which is very um, not unusual in the, in the industry, especially with large traditional aerospace firms. They saw that shift in the market from large satellites to small satellites and knew that, you know, large traditional companies that were groomed to build satellites a certain way, just they couldn't make that to build uh, cost affordable small satellites. Uh, it, it's it's very complicated, very hard for them to make that shift. So the two investors in Leo Stella had that common interest. They both wanted to create uh, a company that could build cost-effective small satellites, um, and not just one-offs, but more in a constellation production mode. That was really their main focus, right? 
Um, for one of them, Talisolania Space, which is actually a French company, their interest was more like akin to a traditional aerospace company. Um, helped me make that jump to build small satellites, and they wanted Leo Stella to be that company for them that actually built small satellites. Um, the other company, Black Sky Global, they had a slightly they wanted a company that would build their small satellites as well, but their focus was a little bit different, right? Black Sky is more of a, a data service company, and they wanted to focus on their data services, not on the shiny widget over here. So let's create a company that can build those spacecraft for us. Meanwhile, they can focus on that data service. And I think that's what makes Leostel a little bit unique in the marketplace. You see a lot of new space companies that um, they're trying to build spacecraft, but they're also trying to sell a mission at the same time. And Leostel is really solely focused today on let's produce spacecraft and let's help other companies, other individuals accomplish their mission goals. And that's kind of what the unique entry for Leo Stella is. To, to just take a um, step back related to the structure here. Now, you know, you're running a company, you know, that is a joint venture between Talos and Black Sky. How does that inform management decisions when, and um, I'm, I'm curious, how, how does that structure Right, having having both Talos and, and Black Sky being um, obviously significantly involved, um, how, how does that inform your decisions? Yeah, so they empowered Leo Stella. They stood it up from scratch as sort of a, I would say, a greenfield. There was nothing there before. Um, they converted an office space to a production floor and stood up the company as a self-sufficient, self-governing uh, company. Uh, the investors retain both seats on the board of directors, and that's really where their controlling influence occurs, right? So the day-to-day -day management, the pursuits of the programs, largely driven by Leo Stella as a company by itself. The board of directors are there to help drive the company and help assist the company in accomplishing those goals, but also making sure that they meet the original intent, right, which was help build satellites for black skies so that they can field new systems um, and new data services and help Talisalania Space, who's who's really much more focused on international markets than the U.S. market, but also see where there's opportunities to help them sell some of their capabilities, their payloads into the U.S. market as well. And so it's more sort of they've got it set up such that we're sort of running Leo Stella as a independent company. Let's just talk really quickly about core products. So what, what are what are um, the core offerings that Leo Stella provides today and how much of the customer base um, sits between Talos and Black Sky? Yeah, so my former career, you know, 25 plus years building spacecraft and space systems, uh, the first answer you would normally get is, well, here's the mission and the payload and the service that we're providing, right? So, so Leo Stella, as I mentioned, is really more the production house, even as uh, we're simply the spacecraft manufacturer. Um, so our core products are really focused around three spacecraft that we build. And it's really, I want to emphasize a little bit more, it's not so much the total spacecraft with the payload, but more the bus the uh, operational side of the spacecraft from how you operate the spacecraft, how you enable the payload to do its mission. That's really the main focus for us. And we have three products there. Um, we have the launch product, which is the OS-100. 
um, that we've built uh, 20 of those spacecraft and have multiple um, of those on orbit. Uh, we have the LS-200 bus, which is currently in production for the next generation Black Sky satellites. And then we have the LS-300 bus, um, which is uh, also has a launch customer um, that we're working on today uh, that'll um, provide increasing capability. And so each one of those LS-100, 200, 300 have increasing capabilities into them. Uh, and they parallel the shift in the general small satellite market trend where you're seeing the small satellites moving from very small satellites to larger. Um, and that's what LS300 represents. It's a 300 to 500 kilogram class satellite, whereas the LS100 is sort of a 150 kilogram class satellite. Let's talk a little bit about the demand picture. Um, you've been in the industry for some time. You know, you've seen the the shift from large to small, what is, uh, how is demand shaping up for Leo Stella right now? Um, are you seeing, uh, well, we'll talk about competition a, a little bit later because I know there's a number of obviously providers out there that are building um, small spacecraft, small satellites, but how, how, how do you, um, how are you measuring demand right now? Yeah, so I, um, the market is strong. Let me say that. Um, and it's incredibly um, resilient to the financial forces at the moment. Um, it's driven a lot by joint investors on the commercial side, uh, venture capitalists uh, that are trying to help small companies um, create new business models and sell new data services. And as a result of that, we're seeing a pretty strong demand. Um, I laugh frequently with my business development guy about uh, maybe we should do more marketing and and it's it's normally you know my career has been you need to go out and and work with the customers and try to sell your capability uh, we're still in the business right now of fielding phone calls as opposed to doing some active uh, marketing and sales out there which i think exemplifies just how much activity is going on in the small satellite marketplace and and if i could say that one of the big drivers for the small satellite marketplace yes the satellites are maturing the small satellites are getting more capability we're starting to see the influence of new technology into them as well but it's also the total cost of a system right so the total cost of the system is not just the spacecraft and the payload but how you operate your ground stations and your launch costs um, and to put it in perspective, 10 years ago, a launch cost of $200 million was not unheard of. Today, we're talking about launch costs where they're trying to drive it into the single-digit millions. And so your total cost to deploy multiple satellites in orbit, which is really what you need to sell a data service, um, has become much more affordable. Uh, and that's where we're starting to see the trigger. The satellite is becoming more capable in the smaller scale and the launch costs coming down such that the venture capitalists can actually afford to launch that data service through a constellation of satellites into orbit. And, and as a result of that, we're seeing pretty strong demand still in LEO. Um, and we're keeping our eye on, I would say, on uh, the MEO to CIS lunar regime. To me, those are have similar spacecraft demand requirements from how I build the spacecraft 
Uh, that's going to be a pretty strong evolving market as well. It's not quite there yet, but it's growing as people understand how small satellites can actually help in geo. Um, and certainly when we get to cislunar, uh, the, I think the value stream there is obvious. It's just a timing issue of when that is really going to kick off. You have products on the roadmap right now to, to meet that type of customer, kind of the cislunar customer? Yeah, so one of the important things I think every company should have, and Real Stella has as well, is not just, you know, a mission statement of what we do today, but a vision of where we want to go to in the future. And we've clearly set on the three to five year timeline that we want to have a product that sells, you know, meal to assist you in all that's um, because I see that strongly as an evolving market and we don't, we don't, we want to be, um, and, and not just an evolving market of small satellites, but an evolving market of constellations. Um, and, and if I could go off on a small uh, tangent for you for a second, um, Leo Stella's was created really to do production to support constellation builds or multiple unit spacecraft. We're not really the house that you would come to and say, I just want one specialized satellite. That's a, a lot of engineering work. And I don't really need a highly efficient manufacturing floor because there you're willing to pay the cost of just a one-off type satellite. We're really focused on, we have a highly efficient factory floor, very small footprint that we can flow multiple satellites through a month. And as a result of that, we're looking at where is the market moving in constellations. And right now it's largely driven by LEO, but we want to make sure that we're well positioned because Cislunar will certainly be a constellation size market. Um, and we believe that there's opportunities in MEO and GEO for the evolution of constellation uh, markets there as well. So. What, what are the capabilities do you think that we'll need for Mio to Cislunar? Um, have you had any initial conversations with potential customers that are kind of looking out like you guys are um, and said, hey, this is the type of thing that we're thinking about and this is the type of um, product that we're, we're, we're potentially looking at based on you know government needs or potentially commercial, commercial needs? We've had some and we're continuing to have more conversations with various interested parties and customers. Um, commercial, government, MOD, international. I would say that uh, the large demand for types of capabilities in Neo to Cislunar um, are sort of enabling technologies, right? So <clears throat> communication is going to be key. So how do I improve communications? Optical crosslinks, great. The improvement of optical crosslinks are going to help dramatically. Um, resiliency in operations. So while optical crosslinks become a big driver, RF crosslinks are still important because they're well understood today to be a little bit more resilient and better understand how to operate. Um, but as you go from MEO to Cislunar, those are long ranges, and that's where the optical crosslinks would be very valuable. Uh, I would say the other key driver are, are things like we're doing today in LEO orbits, where we're moving to electric propulsion on our latest satellites. Both the LS-2 and our LS-300 will have electric propulsion on them. Uh, traditionally, electric propulsion has been sort of a, a large monothruster for a big geo satellite. Um, but there are a handful of companies that saw the value to small satellites and have developed those products for small satellites. 
the, the key part about electric propulsion, other than it sounds cool, uh, is really that it enables you to have a much smaller tank for the same amount of capability that a gas system does, which is the traditional market um, uses a gas system. So that means it's much more compatible with a smaller satellite. And if I think MEO to Cislunar, that's a large range to operate in. I don't want to run out of gas. I'm not going to be able to deorbit it. And so that solution space of having highly efficient fuel systems is going to be very important for that market. Um, that's also why we're starting to pay closer attention to things like nuclear propulsion that has the promise of advancing that even further, um, longer duration ability to operate and um, refueling. Uh, I know that you've had some people on about refueling and that that's a, certainly going to be a game changer for Constellation operations and Cislunar for sure. Um, if that That's going to be dramatic and something that we really need to keep our eyes on. Um, satellite servicing, I think will be important as you start to get to a point where you've got a much larger Constellation out there. Um, and you want to, we're, we're seeing that in geo already, right? We're seeing a lot of the geo slots are highly contested and you've got two countries operating two communication birds very closely together. Uh, and that's where the satellite servicing value stream comes in, where you've got a very dense market of a lot of satellites and we need help either moving a satellite or adjusting its capability and allowing it to station keep better. Um, and so that's where I see the satellite servicing market um, value is really when that market starts to get to that very congested point, that'll help quite a bit. How have you worked with the uh, government customers so far? So most of that is I brought that with me out of my prior <laughs> assignments and various uh, careers that I've worked. Large experience working with the U.S. government and talking with the right parts to understand where they're moving. Um, everything from the R&D customers that are trying to understand what are those next generation. And that's really helpful for some insight as we talk about what type of technologies and capabilities do you need from Constellation, say, in Cislunar. He's talking to those R&D branches of the U.S. government. Um, Space Force clearly is a big driver, right? So Space Force is uh, operational customer, and they're the ones who are going to set, this is the mission need. And if I remind you that I said wheel cell is a bus manufacturer, not the mission house per se, right? But that helps us understand that, you know, we we try to build a, a bus that um, has some flexibility still to it. So not 100% complete. We're not saying this is the bus, you have to figure out how to fly your payload with it. We're trying to build a uh, mostly complete bus say 80%, 75% complete. And then the last percentage of that bus, we want to customize for that payload to optimize the ability of that payload to work in a small satellite. And that's where the value is for us to talk to the Space Force and understand where's that mission driving? What do they need those payloads to be able to do to, for example, you know, do they need to pivot very quickly? Do they need to, does the bus need to turn them rapidly? Um, what sort of communication do you want to do onboard edge computing or are you planning to download mass volumes of data? That's the infrastructure that the satellite bus provides, and we're focused on providing that very cost efficiently. You mentioned earlier that you know, you, you're, you're focused on um, 
larger units of, of satellites and not so much, you know, one specialized, you know, satellite from a manufacturing perspective. How do you manage the balance between, you know, customization and that standardization, right? Um, especially for someone like the government customer who typically has very highly custom needs. Yeah, the, the U.S. government for sure has um, always wanted to build their systems with the latest and greatest technology. Um, in the same breath, and I've seen this over the past 10 years, they want the commercial value uh, and offering that comes from working with commercial space uh, companies like Leo Stella. They like that price point, um, that very competitive price point. Uh, in the single-digit millions that a bus provider can provide, that enables a lot of mission capability to the government. And they're not getting that really today, right? Um, so really the focus with them is, hey, uh, we can't give you the latest and greatest technology at a production cost that gives you that value. Uh, for example, if you want a nuclear propulsion, that's, that's going to be some large amount of customization. Um, so the discussion we're having with the Space Force in particular is how do we enable you to fly multiple missions? What can you do rather than put all the advanced technology into the total satellite? Can we focus the advanced technology on the mission or the mission unique part of the bus that drives that last mile of completion of the bus? Let us build the core infrastructure as cost effectively as we can so that you can focus on the mission side of the spacecraft rather than have this conversation of, well, we want everything to advance to the latest and greatest technology. Um, and I think they're starting to they understand and uh, I think they're starting to move that direction that really having um, uh, commercial companies that are feeding like Leo Stella, we're flying electric propulsion now, we're able to bring that in in a production sense rather than a unique customization sense and very expensive them. Uh, for us, it's much more affordable. And then take things like edge computing and push that onto the mission side with the payload and let them focus on how to create that mission unique offer or how can we get to a point where we start standardizing those in a production sense. And it's not so much standardization of the product as it is, how do you get to an affordable production rate and production cost on the bus side? Um, and so we're trying to drive that distinction. And I think the government gets it. We've had multiple conversations with them over the years about, you know, the uniqueness of a mission versus the commonization of a standard bus. Um, and it's that, boundary where we want to constantly drive new capabilities into the bus, <clears throat> but we want to drive them at a commercial production rate so that we can get those uh, payoffs from the lower price of the commercial bus. What are um, some of the challenges that you faced building um, you know, a manufacturing capability um, to, 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 to have high rate production? Right? What are the challenges that you faced? And then maybe what are some things that you guys have done very well? Um, to get to high rate production? Yeah, I would say um, the biggest challenge is um, the industry as a whole is moving from sort of one-off manufacturing to uh, production rate system. Um, that movement, if I 
look at aircraft as an example uh, or go all the way down to automobiles as an example, they've advanced that capability to a production rate. And that means that their infrastructure that supports that ability, um, think of it as a digital manufacturing resource program, that's set up. They've set everything up from their inventory to the production floor to do sort of rate manufacturing. And in order to get those cost efficiencies, that's really what you need to grow into. Um, and a lot of the small satellite companies, as they become successful, they start with one-off unique prototypes, and then they drive into, okay, now I need to retool my floor, and I need to figure out how to do things more cost-effectively. I need to roll in a new manufacturing system. I've got to get rid of, believe it or not, um, paper or other ways to work in the production cleanroom environment. Um, and I think that's a big success for Leo Stella that, that we try to tout, and I'm not sure we're, we're able to get that out strong enough yet. But Leo Stella was set up from the beginning uh, to do production rate manufacturing. Um, so the, the floor is highly efficient. It's a compact space. It was thought through on um, inventory, through rate manufacturing with a digital MRP system as the backbone that manages all of that raw inventory through to completed spacecraft. And so the Leo Stella doesn't need to go through that traditional new space step of retooling for production rate. We are set up from ground zero from the beginning as a production floor house. And that's been the unique aspect of Leo Stella. Uh, and there are obviously, as we continue to grow, there's going to be trigger points where we need to expand that capability. But that's a different step in expansion as opposed to going from I, I was able to build a couple of unique satellites in the small satellite area. And now all of a sudden I've got a contract for 30 satellites and I've got to figure out how I go from building two spacecraft to 30. We're already in that 30 regime. And that's kind of the the unique success of Leo Stella is we're well positioned to already build multiple units. Who do you uh, consider your competitors to be? Multiple, multiple competitors. Um, I would say, I think the strongest ones are probably companies like uh, York Space Systems, uh, Turan Orbital, Airbus, um, but even the other companies that work more in U.S. government markets like Millennium Space Systems, Group Canyon Technologies. Um, but because of Talos Alenia Space being one of our mission partners, uh, we're also keeping a close eye on our competition in those international markets because that's where Talos Alenia Space really plays is in those international markets. Um, and, and that's also an aggressive growing marketplace where you've got a lot of international countries thinking, you know, I, I would like to have my own constellation of satellites that focus on helping me secure my country and my borders. Um, and so many of those countries are looking for international bus solutions. And that's a much larger marketplace. Uh, yes, U.S. dominates still the space industry, but as we look in the international marketplace, now we have players from both France, Germany, as well as other countries that we're competing with. Have you been uh, thinking or looking at some of the startups that have entered the scene that are focused on satellite bus manufacturing? Um, and if so, you know, what do you think n new players right, that are starting from ground zero 
what are, what are the challenges that they're going to have when faced against incumbents that have been doing this for quite some time? Yeah, we have that conversation quite a bit. Um, largely, uh, to be honest with you, it's looking at the investment that is still, and this is why I said the marketplace is still strong. We're seeing a lot of new startups pop up. Um, and then you go to the small sat symposiums or the small sat conference and you see multiple announcements of these very small companies. Sometimes they come out of nowhere that have raised 30, $50 million to start up their company and start selling satellites. Um, so we're paying closely attention to that in their ability to raise funds, uh, which I think demonstrates uh, the resiliency and the high demand in the marketplace. Um, but I think one thing that the, I won't say quite so incumbent, I mean, new companies bring new ways of thinking. That's what Leo Stella did to the marketplace. We brought a new way of thinking of small satellites from one-offs to uh, constellation building satellites at a production rate scale. So I think new companies always bring some value um, into the marketplace. But I think that the challenge is going to be for a lot of new companies and, and even some of the new space companies are still struggling with this. What is my value stream in the market? Am I selling data services? If, if really my value stream is to sell a data product, why do I invest so much resources to build my own satellite when there's enough companies that are being created now beyond Leo Stella that could supply that demand of the spacecraft and help them with their payloads? Um, and that's particularly what we do. We don't we don't have to sell the entire spacecraft. I mean, we don't have to design the payload and the ground system. Leo Stella's focus on that sweet spot of production. So if a customer has a mission with a desired payload capability, they can bring it to Leo Stella and we'll help them build that constellation. And I, I would encourage the new companies that are popping up to understand really where their value stream is. Um, I think a lot of the new space companies that are struggling are still trying to decide if they're a data service provider or am I a really cool spacecraft builder. Um, and that's kind of a, a mixed focus for your company. You kind of need to have a vision that makes sense in a revenue sense, but also makes sense for your company as well. Um, and that's where I would suggest some of the, the new space pop-ups um, really need to think about work. What is my value entry into the marketplace? Uh, do I really need to build everything? Um, and I would largely say no, as, as the new space market and the small satellite market continues to expand, uh, certainly the companies who are building everything vertical from ground system all the way up into the, the launch adapters, um, I would say those are going to become fewer and fewer because that's going to be a hard place to find a really competitive market position. Um, now, clearly there are are two companies out there, right? They're building mega constellations with small satellites. Those are unique, set them aside. But for the rest of the marketplace, it's really going to be what's your value stream and can you clearly focus on what you're trying to sell into the small satellite market? Yeah, I think that's good advice. Let's, um, let's talk about Starship. So what do you think, and I'll start with a, with a, with a, larger uh, or open-ended question, then we can dig in. But what do you think the impact of Starship is going to be on the small satellite market? 
I think um, it, it has the potential for having a very large impact. If recall that, you know, what really enables venture capitalists and new company startups that want to sell some sort of service, um, even Internet of Thing type service where they're trying to track packages, you know, across the world, as an example, uh, that you need a constellation to do that with small satellites. Trying to do that with one off is, is not possible. And that constellation comes with a launch cost. And so driving that launch cost down, making it more and more affordable is really where I see Starship adding a lot of value. Um, and not just by itself, but there's going to be a demand response from the rest of the launch providers to Starship. They're going to want to keep match at least with the launch price. Um, so the more you can drive launch costs down, the more you can make that more of a competitive environment um, and keep that focused. Uh, that's going to be probably the largest influence, I think, that Starship will have. Um, obviously, Starship's going to be able to deploy a lot more spacecraft at once. Um, great for mega constellations. Not as important for, I would say, a company that wants to build a constellation of 10 satellites. Because those companies uh, are very, the business models are still a little bit fragile. And they're not going to want to put all 10 spacecraft on one launch vehicle that, that still is questionable whether it's going to get 100% all those satellites to orbit or not. Right. So there's still some uh, business reasons why you might want to spread your satellites across launch, multiple launch vehicles. Uh, so I, re I really think for the small satellite market in general, Starship's going to create uh, an even more aggressive um, price point for launching small satellites. And, and that's just going to drive that market demand even more. So there's a school of thought that a operational starship um, launching many, many times a year is going to not only reduce the cost of launch, right, by uh, uh, various, um, well, not only going to reduce the cost of launch significantly, but that also it's going to fundamentally change the way companies engineer spacecraft. And that there will be some type of break in the correlation between, you know, mass and cost and basically the bottom line is that you know the 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 fundamental issue that the satellite um operators had you know call it 10 15 years ago was that you know these large exquisite satellites cost a billion you know 500 million billion dollars to build and develop and launch and those those costs are going to come down significantly and one of the biggest issues that i constantly hear is um or or, or the need i should say for companies that are looking to build satellites is power Right. And I'm curious, what do you think of that sort of school of thought that Starship's going to actually now re-enable efficient, the efficient, the cost efficient building and development of large scale satellites? Yeah, I think so. If you follow that train of thought for a moment, small satellites were originally envisioned to be throwaways. <clears throat> if I can get 50% of them working and I can produce some that. Uh, 10% of the cost of a traditional large satellite, uh, I can still get a, a good cost point advantage. Um, 
And that's kind of unfortunately where the small satellite module started out at. Um, you can pull that forward into Starship that's going to be launching frequently with a lot more capability to orbit. And you can start saying, okay, I'm going to take a much more risk accepting posture for larger satellites because my launch cost is dramatically lower. Um, the downside of that is that even though the small satellite industry is starting to grow as the launch masses go up, um, and we're still maintaining some cost-aggressive targets for our latest product, the LS300, which is in the three to 500 kilogram class, as you, there, there's almost like stair steps and costs as you go above 500 kilograms. Uh, it still is pretty expensive, and it's going to add a lot of cost to build that satellite on the ground. Um, as you go to that risk accepting posture, you're willing to scale back many of those subsystems, but there's going to be certain subsystems where you just can't scale back on. And those are usually on the reliability. And if I think about um, the number of spacecraft the starships potentially could enable on orbit, the important aspects of that will be the ability of the satellite to reliably communicate and then the ability of the satellite to reliably um, have an end-of-life solution so we don't end up having a lot of dead satellites on orbit. Um, that, that one's a little obvious. And the government's talking about regulations so how to make sure that LEO satellites get deorbited, um, and that's been ongoing for a while. Uh, the first one, which is reliable communication, is, is going to be extremely important. Um, and one of the key technologies I'm looking forward to is the ability of satellites to eventually um, insert the technology we're still talking about with cars, self-driving cars, right? To be able to communicate to another car on the freeway helps avoid collisions, <laughs> fundamentally critical for satellites, right? The reaction time for satellites today to avoid collisions is the gr ground's ability to see and project a potential collision, communicate that up to a satellite. Um, now think of that as a 10x or 20x more dense environment. Uh, you can still avoid those collisions, but your reaction time needs to speed up. And the way to get that reaction time to speed up is to have the satellite do it. Have the satellite communicate to other satellites around it. Know when a satellite's not working correctly have the ability to maneuver real time around that satellite. I think that's ultimately where Starship will drive some of that technology because um, those two key things, reliable communication and the reliable ability to deorbit, they'll be there no matter what, um, even for the small satellite market. Um, now, uh, you were also asking, Mo, I think a little bit about uh, are we going to see a lot more larger satellites enabled? Um, yes, for certain missions, there are always large satellites have a particular value and it's not so much the large satellite itself as it is the bus needs a particular capability. For the commercial marketplace, we're not looking for exquisite type technologies and exquisite imaging as an example. So I don't think that Starship's going to drive large satellites in the commercial marketplace for that reason. From a power perspective, yes, but we're already driving that direction in the small satellite, where a lot of missions, even in the commercial marketplace, would like more power, but they don't need a large satellite for that. 
they still have a small payload, um, a small footprint on the bus side. They just want to operate it more frequently, more aggressively, which drives higher power requirements. Um, ultimately, I think the game changer for the future will be less uh, launchers like Starship and probably more on our ability to maybe assemble spacecraft on orbit um, or eventually someday even do manufacturing the satellite on orbit. Tim, have, has Leo Stella taken in outside capital? No, so far, uh, Leo Stella is only funded through its uh, partners. Is there any, um, what, what are the long, long-term kind of funding plans for the business? Is it at the point where it's, it's, it's no longer in need of additional investment or is Talus and Black Sky going to continue um, supporting the business for as long as needed? Yeah, that's something that we strategically talk about at the board level frequently. Um, where is that pivot point? Yes, at some point, Leo Stella needs to look at outside capital. And where is that pivot point in our growth? where it makes sense for the company to move to outside capital to enable that next level of growth to occur. Um, you know, I'd mentioned that we're already set up to do rate manufacturing, but that was, uh, you know, the rate manufacturing we have translates into our larger products, but at a lower rate because of the footprint, right? Larger satellites simply take more space, even, at, even when you're highly efficient in building those. Uh, so at some point, as we continue to grow in the marketplace, we're going to have capital needs that are going to drive us to require more resources. Um, and the other thing is, you know, in order to grow into new markets like Cislunar, uh, potentially you'll need an influence of capital to help enable a cost-effective solution in those regimes as well. Um, so I would say we're not we're not at the point today where we're looking for outside capital investment, but we're certainly thinking about where is the right inflection point in Leo Stella's future um, to add that trigger that will really kick off uh, our ability to do rate manufacturing um, at a larger scale. Tim, if, um, just as we wrap up here, um, you know, if you weren't running a space business what would you be doing yeah that, that's funny i had the i've been on the job for about a year um uh, it's been pretty exciting from day one and it continues to be pretty exciting running a small company like leo stella um it's great to be able to put your finger on the pulse of everything that's happening today and drive it in a good direction uh, but <laughs> i laugh because that was the one of my interview comments that I got from one of my board of directors, they, they said, hey, what would you be doing if you decide not to take this job? And I said, I'd probably go start my own company. Uh, I have this passion for space, and I know what small satellites are capable of, and that's probably where I would go. Uh, my wife and I have talked about it frequently, so uh, I guess that's what I would be doing if I wasn't running this company. Well, I'm going to I'm going to say that's a good answer, but I'm going to say let's take space out of the equation altogether. So that's let's just say that's not even an option for whatever reason. So nothing to do with space. What else what else would you be doing? Oh, there's a lot of things I would go do on my list. <laughs> uh, from a from a company perspective, uh, personal everything from uh, 
I have a passion for airplanes. I actually have a passion for skiing. I love to see the advancement of technology and skiing in advance. Um, and uh, I always toyed around with, you know, it might be fun to, I won't say run a small restaurant, but manage it as opposed to run it. Uh, so certainly wouldn't sit still and get bored. So uh, it sounds like, given everything you're saying, that the ideal, uh, you know, what you would be doing ideally if it wasn't for space is be, would be running a ski lodge or something. <laughs> Combining your uh, restaurant, your, your restaurant interest and your skiing interest. We'll put a deli on the ski mountain somewhere. All right. Well, you'll have to let me know when, if you ever do that. So I'll come visit. Uh, Tim, Sorry. thanks so much for being... Thanks so much for being on the show. It was a pleasure to have you. And uh, looking forward to seeing uh, the growth and the future of Little Stella. We'll be watching very closely. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for your time. It's been uh, Appreciate it.